everyone welcome back to the number one podcast in a sport where we might just get our first ever all-female super fight and i won't lie i'm super excited by the prospect of savannah marshall versus clarissa shields and i i hope sky and boxer don't drop the ball on this one because for all the hype and the talk about katie taylor versus amanda serrano if we really strip that fight down to what it is Amanda Serrano is basically a glorified fitness girl who's found her way in boxing with clever matchmaking, this, that, and the third, right? Never really dominated her peers in the amateurs. Didn't really do that much. And and then you've got Katie Taylor on the other side. And look, Katie Taylor comfortably fits into the category of pioneer. Katie Taylor wasn't dominant at 60 kilos. Um, She won 2012. Um, We know there's talk of corruption around... 2012 and in fact 2016 so those results are neither here nor there it's more what happens in the wider tournaments and there were people who could beat Katie Taylor but Katie Taylor's a hell of a boxer yeah and that's so that fight's compelling in that sense in that here are the two female boxers that the machine has tried to force on the fans and the fans have said no the biggest fight remains Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall for two reasons one they are big women right you know, they'll be coming in in the low to mid 70 kilos. I imagine Savannah will be fighting on fight night at 77, 78, which is impressive. Clarissa Shields might come in at a comparable weight. And then you've got the big question, and this is why this fight is so intriguing. Both women have had their way with their opponents, right? Not really had tough fights. I know Shields has been dropped once, but... Never really been in doubt. And remember Clarissa Shields, two-time Olympic gold medalist. That's not to be sniffed at, by the way. So she she won the gold when when it was new. And then she defended it. Remember, she defended it after the systems had matured. And, you know, it was a higher quality of opposition in 2016 than 2012. So you have to respect that. Um, Savannah Marshall probably didn't fulfill her potential in the amateurs. And she's talked about some of the challenges she faced. But you look at it in the pros with smaller gloves and gloves that are friendlier to people who punch hard. And now suddenly you've got this fight. And this fight says, to what level can each woman perform with the other one in front of them? Like when you've had it all your own way, you can look incredible. You can look elite. You can look world class. And Savannah Marshall has in knocking a, a hell of a lot of people out. And Clarissa Shields has looked good dominating people round after round. Can they reach those same levels against each other? That's going to be the intriguing bit. What will Clarissa Shields do when those big Savannah Marshall right hands, and in fact jabs actually, when those big shots start landing on Clarissa Shields, what is she going to do? And then the question comes back onto Savannah Marshall. It's like, Sav, when Clarissa Shields just floods you with work rate, when she doesn't allow you to set your feet, when she doesn't give you space, what are you going to do? Do you have that magic shot? Do you have that shot that will establish control? The answer is we don't know. 
And that's why this fight's intriguing. There are so many tactical and technical elements in this fight. And there's also just the natural animosity. You know, Savannah Marshall's the only woman who can say she beat Clarissa Shields. And Shields gets annoyed that despite all of her achievements, people keep pulling her back to this. Because she doesn't believe that Savannah Marshall deserves the opportunity. That's fair enough. But in time-honored tradition, when it comes to boxing, hey, you lot, scrap it out. But for this to be a big fight for women's boxing, they need a powerhouse card behind it. I'm not saying that these two don't have enough star power, but we want this to be an event. We want this to be an event whereby people can look at this and go, this is the high point of women boxing. This is the point where we stop worrying about what will happen to women if they start hitting each other. This is the point where we go, they're damn good athletes and they're damn good fighters because the skill level, you ain't got to question this. This isn't Ebony Bridges versus a TK Maxx shelf stacker. This is a legitimate fight. This is a fight. <laughs> this is a fight where you just sort of tip your hat and go, whew. You know, I wouldn't want to do three three-minute rounds with either one of those two. You know, yeah, <laughs> and I know there'll be people listening to this going, yeah, I reckon I could, I could spar Savannah Marshall. No, you couldn't spar her. You couldn't spar Clarissa Shields. Don't think it. It it would be a nightmare for someone who could actually box. Do you see what I mean? The only advantage you may have over those two ladies is that you can take a harder shot. That's it. But not in terms of skill, strength, speed. Only a handful of people and they'd all have to be trained fighters, if I'm being honest with you. But I'm happy that we're getting this fight. It seemed that it would take forever to get made. But like everything else that doesn't involve Eddie Hearn, it's funny how quickly these things seem to happen when he's not involved. And as we know, Devin Haney will tell you that fights happen quickly when Eddie's not involved. And still, he doesn't have the self-awareness to realize he's the problem. But that's uh, another conversation for another time. In terms of this one, I found it really interesting that Mick is still involved in Savannah Marshall's career. I think he's still collecting his 30%, which it just <laughs> shows Mick Hennessy's all about his business. So I think in the contract, it did say 30%. I don't even know how long. It might even be forever that he's got to pay that. But, you know, Mick, Mick's still eating off that. Who, who God knows, he's probably eating off Carl Froch's restaurant. Man. He's probably got to cut into everything. And that's when you realize Mick's not as crazy as people would have him believe. But if Mick could get some guys on that card as well, I think that would bolster it. And I think that might be the reason he was in Newcastle, to try and cement that. I'd quite like to see Isaac Chamberlain on that card. I think that would be a good platform to reacquaint him with the Sky Sports public. And remember, Sky Sports is the platform that made Isaac. So I think it'll be a nice homecoming for him. Uh, in terms of the wider stable... You could put Sam Eggington in. God, you put him in with anyone, right? And you, and you know what you're going to get. You're going to get something that's too compelling to turn away from. So if I'm being honest, I think the whole Shields versus Marshall thing, if we're going to get behind women's boxing, this, this is kind of the Mount Olympus for us. This is exactly what you want where there are no questions about either participant in this fight. No questions at all. And we can just sit back and enjoy two women at the top of the game going at it. So the other thing I wanted to touch on is, uh, where do you start with this? You start and you say, yeah, different generations in boxing are cool because knowledge passes from one to the other. And that's fantastic. But what you end up having is, you end up having these really ridiculous arguments in boxing. So one of them came out today and it was, who would win between Canelo and James Tony? 
Now, the fact that this is even a question, <laughs> the fact that this is even a question is insane to me. Like, you could even say who would win between Monty Griffin and Canelo. Right? Who would win between Mike McCallum and Canelo? Before you even get to Tony, before you even get to Roy Jones. But because a lot of the newer generation are so enamored with Canelo and don't really do the, the knowledge to understand who James Tony was at middle and super middle and understand the killers that he fought. And this is what people don't understand. Like Opponents aren't just opponents. Like You do not get people like Iran Barkley in boxing anymore. Legit hard men. Men that didn't need strength and conditioning coaches. Men that didn't need excessive amounts of PEDs. Just guys who grew up tough and they translated that into the ring. This generation don't really understand that. But James Tony's cut from that. James Tony versus Canelo would be a massacre. Would be a massacre. Canelo would get stopped. Let me say that again. Canelo would get stopped. And before anyone pipes up, Golovkin would get stopped. Yeah? You have to remember, you're dealing with a man who went up to heavyweight and slugged it out with Samuel Peter. Let me say again. A man who slugged it out with Samuel Peter. I think Peter weighed like 265, 270 on the night. And Peter was known as one of the most hellacious punches at that time in the division. Let's put it in perspective. It would be the equivalent of Canelo one day saying, I'd quite like to fight a prime Dillian White. I'm not going to wait till he gets old. I want to fight Dillian White now. And not only that, but you fight Dillian White and feel you got robbed. You don't get rocked. You don't get wobbled. You land some shots. You hurt him. Can you imagine Canelo doing that? Because I can't. So when people ask me questions like that, like who would win between this person and that person? If a guy's in the Hall of Fame, it tells you he would have done it in any era against anybody. And James Tony would have done it against anyone. I think Tony would have beaten Hopkins. Had they fought a middle, super mid, I think Tony would have beaten Hopkins. The 90s Tony would have beaten Hopkins. Part of me always wonders what would have happened in a Roy Jones rematch with James Tony at any point. At any weight. Would Tony have avenged that loss? Because Roy admits James Tony was his hardest opponent. And you know James hadn't really taken that fight as serious as he should have done. Never disrespect the boxing gods by comparing Canelo with James Tony. Like, there's a lot to love about Canelo. The fact that he's gone up and down the weights and fought people 100%. But you can't compare people like Kovalev and Billy Joe Saunders to people like Mike McCallum. Um, Michael Nunn and do you know what I mean like Monty Griffin you can't you can't you do yourself a disrespect and don't forget if you go on YouTube you can see the video of Tony versus Gerald McClellan and we know what McClellan was all about at middleweight and Tony was there and he was competitive and he was probably getting the better of that so Let's not have these generational arguments because there are some people who are timeless. Canelo may prove himself to be timeless. He may do. Yeah, you know, we'll look back on Canelo and say, that guy fought everybody. But there's, there are a couple of names we'd still like to see him in with, you know. We'd, li we'd like to see him in with like a Charlo and a Benavidez. After that, I'm, I'm okay with his career after that because 
they then were just creating false idols in order to see him defeated and we don't want to do that but let's stop with these hypothetical intergenerational matchups because the fighters of today are not built of the same stuff as the fighters of yesterday and that's the whole point it's is the analogy it uses it's like a virus right for the virus to survive it has to become less infectious more transmissible less infectious that's how a virus survives into the long term that's why the flu virus is still with us now now for boxing to survive i don't think you could keep breeding killers on top of killers because if you start to create more extreme versions of your james tonys and your iran barclays and so forth i don't think society would be safe so maybe the way of society is to gradually become warmer friendlier softer characters is that a good thing long term only time will tell so an extension of this is a question people are now asking how would Deontay Wilder get on against Alexander Usyk um answer is we don't know but if someone put a gun to my head and said you had to call a winner I'd say Deontay Wilder and here's the reason Usyk does really well against conventionally taught boxers if you're taught one, two, throw your hands straight, keep it really simple like Joshua. Easy. If you come from that kind of Soviet or kind of satellite Soviet system, like your Bradises, um, your Glavatskis and all those sorts of your Eastern European fighters, your, your meat and drink to Alexander Usyk, it's easy for him because he's used to it. That's the system he's most comfortable in. But if you notice, he struggled against guys like Chisora, who is not conventional at all. And that's why I think he would struggle against Wilder. What people don't understand with boxing is you build these little mental maps, right? Like, like, like logic gates in a computer, you know, and there's always a reaction to a defined situation. So if I see a jab come straight towards me, I know what to do. If I see a right hand come straight towards me, I know what to do. Yeah, comfortable with that. You face the challenge of what do I do if that jab doesn't come from the place I'm used to? Now all of those little cues I look for are different. My brain can't process it. Now I'm having to figure things out in real time. Whereas before, I was predicting and reacting based on a prediction. Now I'm having to respond in real time. That's Wilder's strength. Because you can't time him, before, because you can't get that that rhythm because he doesn't really have it he just kind of he just lets hands go from any position which i think actually is the ultimate aim of boxing so you can't time it you can't read what wilder's about to do people say oh my god he he's easy to defend against he's not you've got people as clever and as slick as malik scott that struggled you got one of the best defensive heavyweights probably of all time in tyson fury he got put down a few times why? You can't read where some of these shots come from. If you can catch Fury, you can catch Usyk. Fury's not slower than Usyk. As a, well, definitely not a heavyweight. This idea, and someone tweeted this, it was, I, I, I couldn't really respond because I didn't believe it. Someone said Usyk's a slick boxer. He's not. If you study how Usyk defends, he doesn't ride many shots. His whole defense is making sure the shot doesn't land. You're either going to miss or you're going to land on Usyk. He's not really riding shots and he's not using, he's not using his whole body as a defense. 
like like a lot of old school fighters would. So he's there to be hit. And being a southpaw against Wilder, who's an orthodox, the space for Wilder's right hand is vast. Vast. Because that right hand is long. And I think his punch moves faster than Usyk's feet move. So two things are certain. Usyk will get dropped at least twice. It's just about whether he can get up from those or not. Yeah? But by the time you've dropped someone twice, that's two 10-8 rounds. Yeah? So he's got to find four points from somewhere. Yeah? He's got to find four rounds. He's, he's got to find four 10-9 rounds from somewhere to equalize it. But now that's six rounds. And then he's got to win four out of the next six rounds against Wilder. And if you've been wobbled a few times, you can be sure that after each of those, like Wilder will come after you. And I'm saying all that just to say that you can't, you can't let what you fall in love with blind you to the reality. And the reality is if Deontay Wilder was as terrible as he was, he wouldn't have lain waste to as many people as he did. He would not have, he's dropped everyone he's ever fought. That's not an accident. <laughs> that is not an accident. Maybe he found a glitch in the boxing matrix. That's, that's a thousand percent possible, but give him his credit for that. Usyk's a hell of a boxer by all means. But Usyk looks good when people are set up for him to look good against. And that's, that means conventional, straight up and down. And when this Joshua rematch, if they don't solve that problem, they're stuck. Because I was asked this question. Someone said to me, if you're on camp with Joshua now, what would you have him do? And this is no bullshit. I would just have him smacking the shit out of everything. Because the thing about... The, if, you, if you look at those old school guys like your Foremans and your Sonny Listons, Foreman didn't come in going, yeah, I need to find a way to, to deal his jab and match his jab and make sure my two-phase attack. George Foreman came in and said, okay, when can I detonate on this guy? And once he threw that first heavy shot, it could be on the forearms, it could be wherever. Once he threw that first heavy shot and he made you move when you didn't want to move, there came a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Yeah. Remember, no one could get away from Foreman. Don't, don't forget, no one could get away from Foreman, not even Ali. Could, no one could get away from Foreman. The reality is, when you're a big guy with heavy hands, what you're supposed to do is be in position to punch at all times. You don't go backwards. That's why these, these great guys from the 70s and before, that's why they had the cross-handed block. So I could avoid the headshots while staying bang in range and come straight back with my work. That's what you'd be doing now with Joshua and Camp. Now, whether you can learn that in six months is a different question. But the question is, can you unlearn what McCracken put into you in six months? Maybe. But that's what Josh has got to do. Like he does when he gets put down. You know when you saw that, that round 11 against Klitschko and he just came out and said, oh, let's just have it. One of us is going to go down. Let's find out who. That Joshua, I think, knocks Usyk senseless. But I don't know if that Joshua would exist in a fight where he knows he lost before and he also knows that Usa can hurt him too. And even more so, he knows that Usa can stand and trade with him if he has to. That's what's making this rematch really compelling. It's 
you know, can Joshua with the new team and all of this stuff, can he find that kind of Sonny Liston, George Foreman spirit? Because if he can't find it for this fight, we know it's not in him. And if it's not in him, do you really want to put him in with Fury? Do you really want to put him in with Wilder? I don't know. But the reason Josh has been on my mind is, it's far simpler actually. I was having a debate with a friend of mine over Joshua's record. Now I think Josh's record's piss poor. Since he became champion, I think his record is piss poor. What is it? Charles Martin, Dominic Brazil, Eric Molina, Vladimir Klitschko, Carlos Takam, Joseph Parker, uh, Alexander Povetkin, Andy Ruiz twice, Kubrat Pulev, Alexander Usyk. And of that group of merry men, the ticks in the box are Povetkin because he went on to, to still cause damage to prospects and established stars alike. You know, he had great fights with Huey Fury, Michael Hunter, Dillian White. Yeah, he he showed he was a still he was still a live dog in the fight, right? You can't question that. And obviously Alexander Usyk still undefeated, so you have to put that as a tick in the box. But the rest of that is just dross. It's mediocre. Like mediocre. And fans lapped it up. Do you remember when people were buying tickets for Joshua fights before the opponent was announced? Like that sort of that sort of herd stupidity still baffles me to this day. Like I don't understand how. These will be the same people that tell you I'm not taking the vaccine because I don't know what's in it. You're like, well, <laughs> yeah, you pays your money, you takes your choice. I get, I guess, man. Wow. But. I looked at his record and then I started to look and I said, okay, let's look at Deontay Wilder's record since he became champion. And that was equally underwhelming. And when you look at Wilder's record, the names that really come out are Ortiz and Fury. It helps that he, you know, those two comprise five of his fights. So you can say he's been in hard five times. But then you look at Fury and you go, okay, Vlad, aging Vlad, but Vlad nonetheless, because he was top of the mountain. And he didn't look like he'd be toppled, right? So there's Vlad. Then there's a comeback. And then there's Wilder. So that's what? Three Wilder fights and a Vlad fight. Four fights. Joshua's got two. Wilder's got five, but against two guys. And Fury's got four against two guys. So when you look at that, they're all much of a muchness. You, you can't really slaughter one over the other. You can't. Because remember, once you've kind of taken on the monster, they're not a monster anymore. You, you could fight, like he could fight Fury eight or nine times. Psychologically, it's not that scary anymore. And so I was looking at this between those guys. I said, could they have done more? Could they have fought other people? Because let's be honest, when Joshua won the championship in 2016, he only had four money fights. At that point there, if you're looking forward, you're like, okay, there are four money fights here. Two are certain, two are uncertain. Two certain fights, Luis Ortiz, Deontay Wilder. Yeah, both would have done great numbers, right? And both would have been credible wins. Incredible wins, in fact. And then the other two were less certain. Fury coming back to fight him and Vladimir Klitschko coming back to fight him. They were the only options. Everything else was dross. And we'd, we'd spent ages on podcasts and shows talking about this stuff as dross. And it's the same with Wilder and it's been the same with Fury. Apart from those three fighting each other 
and you can sprinkle a bit of Dillian in there if I'm being honest. You don't want to see them fight anyone else. Nothing else matters anymore. Because we know that they're so far ahead of everyone else. That all of these guys are just, they're just seat fillers essentially, aren't they? They're just mediocre level fighters. They're not amazing guys. And so it's hard to hold their records against them because it's like, well, they've had to drag it out until they can start to cash in. And then, you know, they'll all bow out the sport together at the same time, I imagine. And then you flip it around and go, okay. So who's number one for value added? Who's number one for taking on people he shouldn't, well, he should have no right to take on and performing in a way that he should have no right to perform. And suddenly Dillian goes to the top of that list because no one expected all of this from Dillian. Like in terms of value add, in terms of overcoming the odds, in terms of exceeding expectations, Dillian is head and shoulders above all of these guys. I don't know if Derek is. To an extent, he might be. He's definitely there for people faced, but not necessarily for results. Whereas Dillian has those results that were against the odds. You know, he wasn't expected to beat Parker. He hasn't got the pedigree. Rivas hasn't got the pedigree. Povetkin obviously lost the first one, but came back and dealt, dealt with him the way he had to. Lucas Brown, the same thing. All of this stuff, Dillian has outperformed. And that's where we need to give him credit. He's massively outperformed at a time when we moan about our heavyweights for, un for underachieving and underperforming. He's massively overperformed. And I think next time we start having these debates about the heavyweights, let's just be sympathetic. And I'm going to have to be like this too because there isn't anyone for them to fight. I think there is now because I think you're getting a wave of guys who, who look interesting. But those guys have to start fighting each other soon. You know, let's get it back to the days and I'm not saying that these were like the best heavyweights but let's get it back to the days of your Michael Dogs's, your Jerry Kutsears Greg Page James Quick Tills James Bonecrusher Smith, Tim Witherspoon you know those guys in the 80s and we'll never know if they were any good because Tyson obliterated a lot of them put Buster Douglas in there as well let's get back to the to those days where they were just in with each other you, know, you fought 8 times maybe you lost 3 and there was no shame in losing those fights because you were fighting really tough, hard men. And I think this new generation of prospects, that's how they need to be matched. Because if they carry on doing what they're doing, no fans are going to be interested. Because I don't know if you guys are watching what's happening in boxing at the moment, but the kind of, what do you call it? The... The shadow boxing scene is booming at the moment. And I, I define shadow as... Anything not licensed on, under the amateur or the professional code, right? I was watching I was watching the video yesterday, the Sunday Smoke, which is Bouncer's thing, right? It's wicked and bad. And I couldn't believe this. 29,200 people were watching two boxing bouts recorded on three phone cameras. Let me say that again. 29,200 people watched two boxing bouts involving a couple of kids who probably have some boxing experience, but not decorated by any stretch of the imagination. And this was being recorded on three cameras positioned on three different sides of the ring. 29,200. 
I would speculate that that's close to what people were watching on some of these DAZN shows. That's probably what Frank gets on some of his BT shows, if he was being brutally honest. 29,200 people. And from what I understand, most of those people couldn't tell you who Chris Eubank Jr. was. Most of those people couldn't tell you what Anthony Joshua's record was. So these are people who aren't boxing fans. And they're getting their first taste of what boxing is from essentially watching two guys resolve grudges in the ring. And so I was looking at that and I was like, when will boxing realize we don't have time for long payoffs. I think I've talked about this before. If you look at what being a fan is, it's a transaction, right? If I'm a Liverpool fan and I buy my season ticket, my payoff is at the end of the season, hopefully, when we've won the league, the FA Cup or the Champions League. That's my payoff. If my team holds a trophy aloft at the end of the season, it was worth it for me. In some cases, I get to see my mates for 20 games a season at home. Worth it. Yeah, but you know your payoff points. You think about boxing. You bought all the pay-per-views for Joshua after he became a world champion. You bought all of those pay-per-views in the hope for Undisputed. Here we are nearly six years later. He doesn't even have the belts to make an Undisputed fight. That's a really poor payback. Whereas with these YouTubers slash kind of off the beaten track boxing events, my payoff is right there and then. Or you two don't like each other? It's going to be resolved in the ring tonight? Okay, I'm paying my 20 quid. After tonight, I don't need to know. I've already got, I've got what I wanted out of it. And look at what we're still doing in mainstream boxing. You've got to have this four-rounder. Then you've got to have this six-rounder against another nobody. Then an eight-rounder against another nobody. Then a ten-rounder against someone, oh, we might know that person. They were okay ten years ago. And then we start talking about rivalries. But by this point, you're 12, 13 fights in. Most young people have lost interest. Boxing is going to continue to suffer until we can build instant gratification events. That's why I describe them as instant gratification events. Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall. How many years have we been waiting for this? Close to six Maybe five, realistically. As soon as we knew both ladies were turning pro, this fight has been bubbling. That's a poor payback period. I've had to watch a lot of stuff I didn't need to watch to answer the question, who's the best? And this is where boxing's gone wrong. Well, we wait too long for the payback period. You know, you look at Eubank Jr. When are you going to fight for a belt that we recognize as a world championship? We've been on this journey over a decade. There's no payback. Okay, you fought George Groves, you fought James. Yeah, fine, you did all of that. But where's the payback? Where's the belt? And until we solve that problem of giving youngsters instant gratification, because they don't care about the nuance. You see all the stuff that Macklin and Mike Costello talk about, the stuff that I sometimes talk about, they do not care about that. I was talking to one young lady about this, and she said, I watch this because I just want to see someone get knocked out. Yeah? These guys all talk tough on social media. I want to see them in the ring. I want to see one of them knocked out. That way, we'll find out who the, I mean, who the bad man is, as she said. And there's a whole generation that will pay to watch that. You're seeing it at Wembley. You're seeing it 
a Manchester. You see it, you'll see it in Crystal Palace soon enough. All of this stuff is being done because they know they can give people instant gratification. It's something mainstream boxing doesn't do. We still talk about structuring careers like it was the 1950s. And I ask myself, why? Because if you told me, Terry, here's a kid, you're going to have him from debut. After five fights, he's got to fight for a Southern Area title. Okay. Now I've got to get him ready to fight for a Southern Area title within five fights. That's my problem to solve. Not the promoters, not the managers. That's my problem to solve. Why can't we do it that way? If you haven't fought for a Southern Area in five fights, man, you're out. And bring someone else in who's capable of doing it. Until we start giving these short payback periods, these, these shorter periods between investing and gratification, I don't think we're going to grow boxing, if I'm being honest with you. And, and why is that important for a boxer? Here's why. Jack Grealish is about to become one of the faces of Gucci. Jack Grealish, yes. Jack Grealish, who doesn't understand what the rules of a lockdown are. Jack Grealish, who doesn't mind sharing photos in bed with a prostitute. Jack Grealish, that Jack Grealish. The Jack Grealish who did what he wanted at Villa and has surprisingly been very disciplined at Manchester City, almost as if he didn't really respect the Villa hierarchy. Yes, that Jack Grealish is about to be the face of Gucci, or one of them. And I was looking and I was like, Joshua was meant to be that. Joshua was meant to be that guy, much like David Hay before him, that took boxing into high fashion, that took boxing into luxury. And it hasn't happened. Now, there are reasons why you would want to back Grealish. Number one, it's a World Cup year. Number two, Man City are going well in everything, it would seem. So he's high profile, he's visible, not bad looking guy, an interesting guy, finds himself around the right people. You know, also in the World Cup year, what are the big footballing brands? Brazil, France, um, Germany, and probably England. They're the big footballing brands at the World Cup. And Grealish is likely to give us moments of magic in that World Cup if he can keep his form. So I understand why you would do that, but Anthony Joshua's given us moments like where he's commanded a whole stadium. And he's nowhere near Gucci's list. He got Hugo Boss, but that was just so they could have a black face on their promotional material. And every five years when we remind everyone that Hugo Boss were affiliated to the Nazis, they'll just bring out another Joshua collection to go, eh, that's a long time ago. He's got the Land Rover thing, but when do you see Joshua in Land Rover marketing material? You know, if you look at what like Land Rover target a very defined demographic, and it's people who can afford their cars. People who have that lifestyle where a Range Rover is just a convenient accessory. So they sponsor rugby. And a lot of rugby players have good deals with Land Rover. And they get Land Rovers and Range Rovers, like Joshua does. But they get to appear in marketing material because maybe they're married to a princess. Somewhere along the line, right? Boxing has got it horribly, horribly wrong. And it's failed to create stars who cross over enough that you can get a deal with Gucci. I don't know how you fix that, but a lot of managers are failing their fighters in not coming up with a plan for this. I've never understood why. It should be pretty simple. If you can get Joshua to Land Rover, you're telling me that six years later you can't get Joshua to 
to Gucci. You can't get Joshua to Rolex. Really? But those guys are throwing money at golfers. And that goes to show boxing hasn't done a good job in targeting the right demographics. But the last thing I wanted to close out on was the just sort of like a follow-up to the previous episode where we'll talk about Phil Martin and why guys like that are so important to the boxing a lot you guys experience. And it's, it's this. I don't think you could get people to perform the way they do on a Saturday night or Friday night or Wednesday night without guys like Phil Martin. They're the people who take you beyond your capabilities. They break new horizons for what you're capable of. They see more in you than you see in yourself. And I get asked, I get asked this a lot when people say, you mentioned Mick Carney a lot. What was Mick like? And I always say, Mick was one of the hardest people to please. But you knew you had done something right when he was pleased. And I remember towards the end of his life talking to him about that. And Mick would always say things like, it's about the standards you have for yourself. You know, I'm paraphrasing here because I've had to internalize it and make sense of it myself. But essentially that was it. Because I remember in the early years at the lodge, like the first time I went into the lodge was something like December 11th, 2003. And I went in, trained. They asked me if I'd boxed before. I said, look, I used to train up at Unity in Sheffield, the Ingle Gym, but they obviously knew what Unity was. And they said, yeah, go and have a little training session. But you know, when you train at the Ingles, man, your form's all over the shop. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, you're not conventional. And so after the session, he's like, how did it go? I was like, ah, it was all right. I'm a bit tired. I'm not as fit as I used to be. But then I mean, when the fitness comes back, the sharpness will be there. And I'm talking like this. And he's like, I don't think this is a gym for you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, no, I just don't think this is a gym for you. I said, look, and I'm looking around the gym going, you see all these guys here, but you're telling me they're better than me. And he was like, yeah. And then Billy Webster, who was also like, Bill did most of the coaching, Mick did most of the managing, essentially, and the matchmaking. Although they're a team. I don't I don't see them as, as separate from each other. I see them as almost one unit, like Siamese twins. And Bill was like, now nah, you seen the left hook he's got there, and Bill was like, "Yeah, he's he's got something about him." Yeah, no, let him come, let him come back. <laughs> that was it. Let him come back. Mick was like, "You can come back on Friday, whatever it was. I can't remember." And I remember just thinking, "I better get my get my shit together," and I did. And after that, I was cool. After that session, I was cool. But it wasn't really till two thousand eight because I still wasn't serious, and I still. I was still a decent level rugby player. So that was my focus. And I was drinking and partying a lot. So I wasn't really, I didn't understand about that sacrifice and discipline that you needed. And I think that's why in those earlier years, Mick didn't really invest a lot of time in me. But after 08, so 08 till, till Mick passed, I saw Mick every week. We spoke about absolutely everything. Were there people that Mick held in higher regard than me? Probably, of course, because he'd been around boxing a long time. He had relationships that predated me. But one thing I always realized was Mick could speak to me about anything. I could speak to Mick about anything. You know, we, we discussed shoes, you know, 
You know, do you go with the bro? Do you go with the Oxford? What's the occasion? Uh, we talk co We talk all of these things. Sometimes we talk jazz because my dad was into jazz. Man, um, we talk about the state of the economy. We talk about all sorts of things. And I remember showing Mick um, that you could watch videos on your phone and break down fights and stuff. And even he showed me, he was like, nah, nah, you got to learn to look for the right things when you're watching a fight. And he schooled me on that. And those relationships, they're interesting because it's also about the training sessions. And he'd work you into the ground. And, you know, you'd be like, you do your, 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 your bag work. And then you'd have to do this brutal circuit for about 15 minutes. And you're looking at Mick to stop. And you're like, Yo, this is when you normally stop, Mick. He's like, not today. And you'd carry on and you'd just, you're just redlining it. You know, you're redlining it until you're like, Jesus, this is, this is backbreaking work. But at the end of it, the exhilaration you feel, and he'd look at you and go, see, I told you. Yeah? It's never the body. It's always the mind. And that's what I say to people I train now. It's never the body. It's always the mind. And when you meet people like Mick, they're not many like them, by the way, because you're a unique character. Yeah. You're a figurehead. You represent a community, even if it's just a community of boxers, but normally it's the wider community because you draw kids in from that community. And when you do that, you hold the futures of a lot of people in your hands. I'll give you an example. There's a young girl called Sydney Poole, lovely young lady. I... I, I used to train her from when she was 15, 16, until she was like, I don't know, 20, 21. And one amazing young lady. And we caught up the other day for a couple of drinks. And like, you got to remember when I first started training her, she wasn't even allowed to drink. So just doing that in itself was amazing. Hearing how her life's progressing was amazing. Being able to have those sorts of in-depth adult conversations, I, I ask her opinion, she asks my opinion, those things. And you, you leave those encounters going, I genuinely care. I care about what happens in her life. I want to know everything. I want to know when she becomes a mum. I want to know when she changes jobs. And I feel the same about Courtney Bennett. I feel the same about John Palazzo. I feel the same about all of those people, I feel the same about Big Chris Brown, I feel the same about Ricardo Slew, all these guys that I've, I've been an older head for in boxing. Even the ones that don't fight, man, like Sylvie, and there are loads of them who never glove up, but I care about their lives. I don't know what it is about boxing. There's almost like this thing that I'm trusting you to keep me safe. And I'm trusting you to help me get better, not just as a boxer, but as a person. And you see that responsibility there, that duty there. Not every coach is designed to, to use it without abusing it. For every McCartney, there are other gyms where people have had to leave because it's just horrible. It's nasty, it's vindictive, it's spiteful. In some cases, it's racist. And that's why these guys like Mick Carney shine brightly. He's not the only one in London. There was, to there was Tony Burns, rest in peace. Mickey Delaney. Um, Steve Heiser. Mickey May back in the day. There are loads of them. And I'm forgetting loads of them. Even the, the old school Haglins. Let's say them as well. Um, Brian John. 
And then you've got the new wave of guys like Sid Khan and Tox up at uh, Stonebridge. You know, you've got the new breed. And then the other guys who get left off the radar simply because their face didn't fit. And one of those is Terry Palmer. You know, when you talk about gyms that had an insane level of talent but never got their credit because, you know, they weren't fashionable. Palmer's Boxing Academy. If you're from Southeast London, you understand how good that was. The talent that came out of Palmer's, I mean, definitely helped shape amateur boxing. The same with Honor Oak as well. There are, there are a number of clubs, even Croydon to an extent, where guys have come out and then got sucked up by more fashionable clubs. But you can't replace these figureheads like Mick Carney and Steve Heiser. These people who, they don't just care about what you do in the ring. They care about you as a person. They want you to be a better person. And I'll give you an example of this. And this has always lived with me. When I used to train, like I had that rugby mentality of I'd wash my shorts every two weeks, right? So yeah. You, you, you'd have Tuesdays mud on when you trained on a Thursday or whatever, right? And the, your, your socks would be dirty and stuff. And you'd just be like that. And I remember Mick would just be like, you can't do that. I was like, what? Why? And he said, you're one of the older guys in the gym. These kids are going to look to you. You may not see it, but they do. If you come in here and your kid's dirty and your kid, it shows you don't care. And if you don't care, they won't care. And he said, and I remember Mick saying, look at this gym. Does this look messy and dirty to you? It's like, no. There you go. That was the conversation we had. And after that, I never did that again. Like, if you ever see me train, like, it's like a fashion show. So I always make sure that stuff goes together. Now, because I'm like, how can I look good when I train? Because now, now I'm of the mindset of if I look good, I'll train good. That's all down to Mick. Because anyone who's played rugby knows there are guys who come in their kits just hanging. And that's one of the things I've been really insistent on as a trainer. I'm like, I don't care how much money you have. It's not about the most expensive kit. I just want you to look like you've thought about what you're going to wear today. Because if you thought about what you're going to wear today, you've thought about what you're going to do today. That's half the battle. If you just threw it in the bag and ran out, that's how you're going to train. And it's all of these things you learn. And these are the things we impart into the guys you see now, your Dan Azizas, your Denzel Bentleys and so forth. And they carry it forward. This is why these old stages are important because one day I might become one of them. And they're an important part in delivering the product you watch because they set the standards. You know, I was talking to, you know, the the quiet voice behind the pod at Des, who I'm going to have to do an episode with at some point, but it'll be the other side of 100. But we need to do one and just really break it down because I think you guys would enjoy it. I can't share the voice to us because they're private, but if we can replicate those in the content, whoo, good Lord. But he talks about walking up to the Repton and looking in the car park and seeing who was there and that trepidation and that nervousness and that, that sense of, it's all business now. And you knew what was coming and it was going to hurt. You know? And if you weren't physically and mentally prepared, it was going to be a bad night at the office for you. And everyone can relate to that, that walk. The names will be different. My names were people like Anthony Small, Linton, and all of these guys. They were, they were the names I recognize. Other people have different names. 
They'll have names like DeGale. They'll have names like Groves. They'll have names like O'Donnell. They'll have names like Richards. They'll have names like Palata, names like Bennett. There'll be different names. Joe Joyce and Dan Parkers and so forth. There'll be different names. But that feeling is the same. And you're like, God, I know what's coming. And everything in me is saying, please let the gym be shut so I can just go home and have a few beers. But once you're in there, you zero in. And it hurts. And it's like, it's taxing on the brain. And you think, wow, I've come straight from work to this. It's taxing, it's hard, it's ruthless, it's brutal. But at the end, the release of energy, the humor, the love, the bond, the trust, the respect, all of these emotions just burst out. And I always say to people, even if you're not involved in boxing, if you can find yourself in a changing room after a brutal training session, you will hear some of the funniest jokes. You will see some of the most touching moments. You will see some of the warmest demonstrations of humanity in history. And I don't think you can do that unless you put yourself in those positions. That's what boxing does. And men like Mick Carney, Phil Martin, and all the all those sort of old stages, all those guys, at one point in time, they were the guys that set that tone. The painful thing is we don't have them anymore. Now, being a coach is about you. It's about you on the gram. It's about you in the media. It's about your pad routine. It's about your wow how, wow how Drake sponsorship. It's about the gym you're building. It's never about the club. It's never about the fighters. It's never about the community. And even as coaches ourselves, we don't have that. You know, how many times would Joe Gallagher and Chris Medley sit down for food and talk boxing? How many times would, you know, Eddie Lamb and Ben Davidson sit down for food and talk boxing? It doesn't happen often enough. So what happens? Joe knows what he knows up in the Northwest. Smedley knows what he knows in Yorkshire. Chris Sanagar knows what he knows down in Bristol. Gary Locke is out there in Wales knowing what he knows. And it's rare that they sit down and go, how have you tackled this problem? Well, I've got this problem. How do you deal with it? It doesn't happen. And I've never understood why. We don't even like the idea of pros and amateurs training together. And that's one of the reasons you see the, the Ingle gym struggled in terms of international recognition at amateur. And it's one of the reasons you see Champs Camp, Phil Martin's gym struggle as well, because the powers that be hated the idea that the pros and amateurs could be together. And all of these things, as weird as they are, end up at a point where we now have people just showing up out of nowhere. Couple set of pads, suddenly you're on Sky Sports, you've got a young girl and you're taking her through. But you you don't have a clue about the values of the sport. You don't have a clue what it's going to take for that young woman to actually win when it matters. You have no idea how fit someone has to be to survive 12 rounds because you haven't done the time. You learn some stuff on YouTube, you got a couple of spreadsheets off the internet. Okay, cool. Okay, run them to that. But how do you know if they're ready or not? Are you testing? Are you measuring? Are you managing? You're doing nothing. And that's what these old timers could do in their heads. They could work out. 
It's like when you watch your grandmother cook. She just knows when it's ready. She's done it so often, she just knows when it's ready. It helps that, you know, you're always taught by someone, but essentially it's that, that feel. And you can't replicate that as a 29-year-old. You don't replicate feel. And that's why guys like Phil Martin, that's why guys like Joe Gallagher, that's why all of these guys that you see, and you go, why are they so respected? Their experience, their status, the level of respect they have mean that they have that feel. They have that intuitive sense of what the right thing to do is in a situation. You don't manufacture that. I think that's probably a good point for me to sign off and say, listen, and Monday mass is a bit late, guys, sorry. But, you know, when you're fasting, you got to get enough food and you have the energy to record. Now, it's probably touching 11, 11, 15. I'm going to try and get myself to the gym, get back in here, be in bed by 2 a.m. <laughs> Pray for me. Take care, guys. Bye.